0: I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Sean Johnson. Oh, we made it through. Yeah, <laughs> John. Well done. You're listening to Close to Read the Podcast for the <laughs> Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing a new book. It's Walter Miller's A Cancicle for Leibowitz*. A uh, Cancicle for Leibowitz*. You know, I um, we need to... My fix, yeah, we need to decide this at what we're going to call <laughs> it because I, I did find different pronunciations of this. Sean, oh, as no. our resident... Uh, Walter Miller expert, do you know
2: the answer to this? I have only ever heard the squishy W.
1: Leibowitz?
2: W- Leibowitz? Witz, yeah, not, yeah. not okay. the hard German All right, W. That's what we're doing. Okay. All right, we're doing. doing that then.
0: We're doing the squishy dub. So it's uh, a canticle for <laughs> Leibowitz here on Close Reads. We're going to be discussing the first eight chapters today and kind of previewing what we're going to be experiencing. Um, before we do, though, Heidi, Sean, how's it going? Heidi, you got any, anything going on in your world that you want to talk about? Uh um, felt like a that seemed like I was a leading I, question. Right. It wasn't. I'm like,
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> actually. I Just ordered some groceries. I've been reading. I did my lesson planning for the What day. are you cooking for dinner tonight? I am making a green curry.
2: Oh yum. Uh, nice. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this is this these are the big events in my life. How about you, Sean?
2: Uh we're we're all going over to my in-laws for dinner. So I'm not cooking anything. That's great. Enjoy it. That's right.
1: I feel like we've just given away some secrets, though, because I want people to think that we have these really exciting lives as like bookleggers on the side.
2: Yeah, we're just booklegging. Yeah. Yeah. I just finished that. I was booklegging for eight eight
1: hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? Saving civilization.
0: (laughs) Have I ever told you that, at least according to him, my grandfather was a Bible smuggler?
1: Wow. Go on. Tell us. Yeah. I
0: just he was a he smuggled Bibles in the For whom the, To so, whom? whence Something to do with the Soviet Union in the mid middle part of the 20th century.
1: That's amazing.
0: Um, you remember know the book God Smuggler? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I loved That, that was like book.
0: he loved that book. And apparently he was somehow it was like that. He would smuggle them like in a trunk. Now, I don't know how much of it was as adventurous as brother Andrew, and maybe like he made the <laughs> stories bigger, or because he was my grandfather, I made them bigger. But oh, my yeah. understanding is he was a he he smuggled bibles into somewhere in the i mean the soviet, the soviet union was big i don't i mean you know what before i tell the story <laughs> i'm going to bring up some Back more research on, yeah. I'm talk to my grandma i believe it so anyway and knowing i him, think that's amazing yeah he did all kinds of weird stuff like that so anyway he he was a booklegger uh, we come from a long line of bookleggers and uh hopefully there'll be a long line of bookleggers following us that's um, right okay so a cancel for Leibowitz. Sean, this is a book that you you do love and Heidi, this yeah, is do. your right. first time reading yeah, it.
1: I've never read this before. I want to hear from Sean,
0: his experiences. Same. Yeah. Tell us, tell us more Sean about your experiences. This
2: is one of those books that, um, I, I came to, I, I was going to say late. It's not as if I'm 80 years old, but, uh, <laughs> came later to this than, live. later than many of late the books I that I, it. that I love. Uh and I don't have, I don't have a particular experience that I associate with this book. Nor do I really have a vivid memory of the experience of reading it for the first time, which is not true of many books. There are many books that I I love and can vividly recall, you know what, what it did to me as I read it, and when and where I read it, and what other things were going on in my life as I read it. This isn't one of those books, but I I do have an enduring uh, affection for it, and it was one of those that I heard. I, I went, I went many years being entirely ignorant of its existence. And then uh, in a really brief period of time, I heard it discussed or recommended, you know, an unusual or uncanny number of times in a short space of time. Uh, and then, you know, was determined to go out and discover it for myself. And uh, I mean, I immediately enjoyed it and have enjoyed going back to it.
0: So this is a book that was written by, as I mentioned earlier, Walter M. Miller Jr. It's the only book that was published during his life, although a sequel of sorts was, I don't know why I said a sequel of sorts, I think it's a direct sequel. It's called St. Leibowitz and the Wild Horse Woman. That was published posthumously in 1997, but this one was published in 1959. It was um, made up of um, a number of stories three stories that, that Miller published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And uh, I'll just one little piece of trivia. Um, you may have seen this if you looked at anything about this online, but apparently the book was inspired by Miller's participation in the bombing of the monastery at the battle of Monte
2: Cassino during world war II, also known as the, uh, the battle for Rome. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's even, I don't think that's a piece of trivia. I think that's, that's really valuable to know going into the reading of this book. You don't have to know it, but I think it makes a big deal knowing well, it.
1: And like Sigurd said, after writing Kristen Lovren's Daughter, Walter He'd Miller converted, converted yeah. to Catholicism after writing <laughs> right. this book. That's right. Yeah,
0: It's so yeah. fun. I couldn't help but think about the connections between this and Kristen Laverne's Daughter. Right. You know, at the same time, it, to not just it goes beyond the novelists both becoming Catholic after the fact it's, yeah. you know, this book feels like it take could take place during the time of Kristen Lovren's daughter, except it <laughs> takes place in the 26th century.
1: Right. Many interesting connections there. So come over listeners and listen to Kristen Laverne's daughter, read it with yeah, us right. over on that's the, right. um, at, on the Substack podcast, if you're not already a subscriber over there.
2: And And I guess to finish off that trivia, for those who don't, no, maybe you, you might be Googling already. Uh, but Monte Cassino was the, the uh, one of St. Benedict's original monasteries. So This is sort of the birthplace of Western monasticism. Uh, and Miller was, uh, participated in the Allied attacks that destroyed it <laughs> and killed the people who had fled there to take refuge, thinking surely these people won't drop bombs on... A place like this,
1: right, with Which, souls like that inside it's a really right. shameful part of allied history and um you know a working out I'm sure of of some internal demons for for Walter Walter Miller, and seems like a worthwhile thing to do,
2: yeah, well, it's also worth noting that he doesn't he never seems to have succeeded in working out those demons because he ultimately uh took his own life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we could talk about this book in so many different from from so many different angles. We could talk about it um from a genre angle, you know, a, talking about post-apocalyptic fiction, science fiction. We could talk about it uh, as a as a religious novel or a novel about faith. Um we could talk about it as a novel about language, and we could also talk about it from a formal perspective. There's so many different angles to go at, which I suppose is why it's been remembered, you know why you know won the hugo award in 61 but it's still still being read um
1: never been out of print
2: never been out of print
0: which you know there's a lot of novels in general but a lot of sci-fi that has fallen by the wayside um and this one you know i was talking to a guy in the shop today who um who orders a lot of really interesting sci-fi and gothic fiction and fantasy and things like that he's points me towards stuff that i'd would not know about a former bookseller and all that. And I'd asked if he'd read this, and he said that he hasn't, but it's been on his list for years. But the thing that kind of has turned him away from it is that it's about monks. He's like, I don't know. Is that uh-huh. you know most sci-fi isn't about monks, right? It's about right. It's, it sounds more exciting than that. And here we have a monk. And I was thinking about how while I was reading it, I was really enjoying it. And I wasn't bored. I wasn't feeling like it was, you know, it it didn't have a kind of forward thrust you'd get in a good novel. And yet then I started thinking about it and I was like, it really is just kind of a guy in the desert thinking about stuff and (laughs) occasionally arguing with people who have power over him and uh, like him being upset with himself. There's not many trappings of... Adventure or of right. even of science fiction, other than the fact that we're told that it's way in the future and there's this this hatch, right? Um, well, maybe that's a little bit too lost. Uh, <laughs> use the word hatch. Maybe that sounds too much like lost. But you know, the the, the fallout shelter. Um, so, Sean, for you, what do you think it is that makes this book readable? Like, why would you tell someone like this guy who comes into my shop? That he should read it, despite the fact that it's about monks. If monks wouldn't normally be something that inspires him, because <laughs> uh, you, I imagine, be like, "Oh, monks, cool! Oh, a book about monks, yeah."
2: <laughs> I I think that was part of the gateway for me. I don't, I don't gravitate toward a lot of science fiction, uh, and that's partly because i i don't I don't end up in the way of a lot of good science fiction, and there's so much bad science fiction that I think that because I'm largely uninitiated. I don't wade in uh, and take too many risks <laughs> with my reading dollars and time. Uh, but the idea that it was, the the concept of the novel was really appealing and intriguing, I guess partly because it's about monks, uh, which uh, is unusual because a lot of science fiction is not just not about monks, but something about the science fiction genre attracts, I think, the... Explicitly anti-religious, uh, probably that old dichotomy of you know science versus the church, or whatever. Uh, it might it might be that might be, I don't know if that's what it is, uh, but I think the the idea that or the the concept of a world that has destroyed itself, uh, being rebuilt, not into some Mad Max Thunderdome. Uh, (laughs) action movie Uh, but the it seems like a more believable and practical approach to what someone what what humanity might actually have to do uh if if all was lost Hmm. uh it's exciting to imagine putting spikes on your car and driving around or uh you know dividing up into districts and Shooting your fellow teenagers to win some prizes uh but the most like, dystopian post apocalyptic uh stories are uh unreal, and this is bizarrely real. It seems like of all the people who would commit themselves to the boring job of just uh remembering stuff <laughs> the, uh it's it's the church and uh the monks in particular uh so to Uh, For a science fiction author to entertain that as a viable premise for a story uh, and then really try and uh, imagine what that might look like, Hmm. even semi-seriously, I think is, is intriguing.
0: Heidi, for you, the monk thing was probably, maybe it was like a selling
1: point. Totally, um, I love stories about monks, and I—I I gotta be honest. Oh yeah, I we do know that about I, you now. Actually, I don't <laughs> actually understand. I because it's such a foreign country to most of us. Like it's such a different culture. Uh, there is this sense of of um, of of eternality within time and like the monastic life, right? You're mm-hmm. living in light of mm-hmm. eternity, uh, in this like enduring way that has gone on over centuries governed by tradition and by the sacred. And that is to me, like the perfect counterpoint of a dystopian novel. Like that's such yeah. an interesting kind of collision of culture and mindset, uh, and experience within a a uh the science science fiction genre that i'm like fascinated by that even if i wasn't religious i think i would be really interested in that Mm. um and and so i i think it's great add to overlay that to the fact that i'm crazy about stories about monastics (laughs) anyway of course i'm like all over this and the preservation of culture yeah like that is i mean i'm trying to think of of something i'd be more interested in i can't really come up with it It seems like a
2: human (laughs) concern (laughs) yeah
1: like medieval times and the future of dystopian times like that's cool so i'm i'm all in
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that there is sort of a that the monastic culture would be a counterpoint to the fallout yes and so because i was thinking about how we don't because of we're so much in the head of brother francis here at the these first eight chapters, we don't really see... We don't get to experience the sort of like vitalizing element of the monastery. I mean, we do in a sense, we know it's there and we see like, you know, the soul being oriented towards repentance and all that sort of stuff. But he's sort of torn up inside. He's very, um, you know he he doesn't know what to believe he doesn't know who to listen to he doesn't know whether he's done the right thing or the wrong thing and he's con- constantly full of doubt and all those, and you know all that and so because of that it creates a bit of tension in the story that doesn't allow us to necessarily experience to this point the monastic life and the monastic world as the healing counterpoint to the fallout so i find that kind of fascinating do you think that do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel the same way? Or do you, or for you is it like there's a clear sort of there's a two opposing forces?
2: No. I think that's I think yeah. that's right and it may be even that that Miller benefits from whatever common understanding of monasticism the reader brings in because uh practically speaking the the affairs of the monks in the novel so far have been not have not pertained to that aspect of monastic life that you're talking about, right? Uh, and so I think the the understanding is that uh, there is that's the virtue of the monastic enterprise, uh, but we have not gotten a window into it through these characters as of yet because they have very particular concerns at the moment,
1: hmm. right? I, when I first, I didn't know anything about this book, opening it up. I knew that it was science fiction, that there was, that it was post-apocalyptic and that there were monks in it. That's all I knew. I kind of thought the monks were on another planet. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> um, I just I just made that up in my own weird Doesn't frame. space stuff,
0: turns out, comes up again in, later in the book though, right?
2: Yeah. Space stuff comes up. Okay. So maybe, maybe why. there. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So... I didn't know anything about Walter Miller and so my first the first couple of chapters I was hesitant because what I thought was going on was that brother Francis was encountering like uncovering the relics of Leibowitz that who that obviously sounds like a Jewish name but he's being um and and his the grocery list is very like traditionally culturally Jewish foods right yeah, and so yeah. what I thought was going on was that he was uncovering the relics of a supposed saint who was probably just some regular guy that <laughs> was not at all holy and that had just been like made up over time like i thought uh, it was yeah. kind of like a um a like a postmodern look at how the church distorts uh the journey oh, yeah. to sainthood right um and and I thought, oh, that's clever, but I'm not really interested in that. Like <laughs> yeah. the deconstruction of of the historical experience. Um, and so I was like so pleasantly surprised and excited when it, it took a different turn and was elevating instead of denigrating. And I think that just speaks to how jaded we are, maybe. Yeah. Maybe me in
2: particular. Yeah. No, I I um, absolutely understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and how in our culture we we are so used to stories that tear down traditional elements and institutions instead of celebrate honor and and recover and try to recover them. Um, and so I'm I'm excited. I would as soon as I figured that out, I was like, oh, this is great. But my first couple <laughs> chapters, and maybe some of our listeners will have this experience too, where. Uh, I I definitely thought it was taking that postmodern deconstructionalist route. So I think
2: I think the way that Miller does that and handles those kinds of things is really subtle and clever, uh, and and remarkable because I th- I think that it's a little bit of uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. And then also be a little bit of a Rorschach test where you sort like, I think I think people who like I think someone who is uh who would enjoy the denigration of these things might still read those passages and be satisfied
1: hmm.
2: that what they wanted to happen might be happening. Um can I so there's a there's a passage that I think is relevant to this when um I'm not even going to ask for permission. I'm just going to read it. Uh, this is on 51 in my version. Uh, I mean, when gonna, the Abbot, well, What we're here the for. The Abbot Arcos... What chapter is... Uh, sorry. Uh, this is chapter four. Several pages in. Uh, the Abbot Arcos is talking to Francis. And the narrator talks about Arcos's approach to Francis... So the paragraph starts with the abbot closed his eyes and rubbed his temples in apparent exasperation. How easy it would have been flatly to have told the boy that his pilgrim was only an old tramp of some kind, and then to have commanded him not to think otherwise. But by allowing the boy to see that a question was possible, he had rendered such a command ineffective before he uttered it. Insofar as thought could be governed at all, it could only be commanded to follow what reason affirmed anyhow. Commanded otherwise, and it would not obey, like any wise ruler, Abbot Arcos did not issue orders vainly when to disobey was possible and to enforce was not possible. Uh, and I think that Miller does that to us. Mm. Uh, I think he doesn't ask us to believe more than what our own reason will allow, nor does he close the door to To that belief, either, uh, which I think makes allows him to treat uh, serious or worthy things with dignity, uh, but not uh, not in a ham-fisted or you know dogmatic way.
1: Right, that would that's be right. that might
2: be off-putting to certain readers.
1: I think that's right, and one book that does the takes a different route on that in my opinion um another modern novel that takes on some of the same questions but is more heavy-handed like you're describing uh, is the book *Mariette and Ecstasy by Ron Hansen um yeah. and that is a very good book but it is it's a book that is making a claim about miracles within the context of the monastic life and the church and um and it's a claim I happen to, agree with, but if you don't agree with it, you're going to hate that book. And, and I think we have a different, in fact, even brother Francis who saw it with his own eyes, uh, his only claim is I cannot deny what I have seen with my own eyes. Like it's his only claim is Bart is concrete. It's materialistic in a sense, even though he's a believer, his whole thing is, I have no idea who that guy was. All I know is I saw him and I can't, deny that right uh and and that to your point is really um astute like very um like just very good storytelling
0: mm-hmm. let's talk about brother francis a little bit how if you had to use like I don't know. It's one of those like teacher questions, I guess. But if you had to use like two Three words adjectives. to describe <laughs> him, how, what would you use? Because I, w- I was thinking about this a lot because I couldn't decide if I really liked him or if I was really annoyed by him or a little bit of both. Like, maybe I liked him because for the same reasons that I was annoyed by him. So, I, I mean, mean I, again, I know it's a little bit, you know, teachery and like <laughs> maybe it's even bad teachery. But I'd be curious to know how you guys would answer this question. I like, get the point of the question is, what do you think of him?
1: I mean, about? my first adjective, I don't even know if I have another one, but my first is earnest.
2: That would be mine, too. It is important, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Being,
2: being so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was immediately the first one that came to my mind, too. Uh, the other might just be young.
1: Yeah. yeah he's only 17 uh, when it
2: starts. He's 17, and 17 in a world where... Uh, there, There's a different kind of – well, there's not a lot of cultural formation <laughs> going on.
1: Uh, there's First a kind of him.
2: maturity that you have to gain quickly uh, if you're being sold as human chattel or you're living out with the wolves or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he's he's 17. There's not, uh, not a lot of uh, wisdom that comes flowing downhill to a 17-year-old in that setting, I don't think. So I, I think that might be part of what's – why he is sometimes – Annoying.
1: It was interesting to me how he turns out to be really smart. Like at the yeah. beginning of of the book, he is portrayed as simple, uh, mm-hmm. and that's to your point about his youth and his earnestness, um, and also his physical ordeal that he goes through, which is, is actually really hard for me to read. I was like, bring that boy inside and give him some water. I have a 17-year-old living in my house. Like, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, uh, But he, later when he starts working in the scriptorium and has those interactions with the other monks, you realize like he is, yeah. he's an intellectual, like he is a right. very, very smart man Uh, and, and I think that makes his then kind of stained backwards, then his youth is even more endearing, I guess. Um, but what was it about him that annoyed you, David? Is it his?
0: I don't really mean like, like I was annoyed by the character. I was just more like, uh, I get, you know, it could be like, um, the way he just kind of the way he responds to other people, the way he can be a little bit of a pushover type character, you know? A little twitchy. yeah, a little twitchy. Maybe yeah. that's the yeah. And part of it is like he has this humility about him, um, and and he's young and all that. I'm not. And again, I like. The, I'm. I think. I think that makes him a good character. Not right. that this is a flaw. I agree. The, the reason
1: I asked that is because I agree. I had like <clears throat> several moments in reading that, you know, that scene. This is gonna date me, but there's there's a scene in Friends when. Chandler wants <laughs> Joey to get something and he's like get there faster like there's a couple of moments that I was like it's very obvious what's going on and if you could see it you could <laughs> respond in a way that would play that would save you some pain that you're bringing on yourself um, yeah, yeah so I did have that like get there faster but
0: and the sim- the the yeah. the idea that he's a little annoying is also tied to the idea yes. that you feel sympathy for him exactly yeah.
2: Um, well, and I do love that it really turns out, though, that if he had, if he had the game. on and yeah. played the game in a shrewder way, the thing, the good that came from it would not have been accomplished. Right. Right. The fact that he was a this pure uh, witness throughout, uh, and w- could not be persuaded to simply, you know herit or accept some proposition that was given to him uh, is what ultimately benefited the monastery and, and perhaps, then maybe Abbott Argos uh, knew that all the time
1: right yeah
0: he he's portrayed in a way that is kind of almost um ag- like he's aggressive there's a like as a as a anta- antagonistic I think might be the word. Do you yeah. think that we're that we're supposed to feel like he's being antagonistic, or, or do we are we supposed to see him as being truly wise? You know, like let's think about it in terms of like a boy, like one of those university novels, or like you know, Good Goodbye, Mister Chips, or one of those type of novels. <laughs> is it yeah. to be like this wise figure who is sort of like putting putting his uh, protege through trials because he knows that on the other he'll come out the other side better, or is he? Is he actually antagonistic in a way that is ultimately harmful to Brother Francis? Although, because Brother Francis is so steadfast and earnest, he comes out the other side better off. Does, that make, does the two yeah. choices there make sense? How do you, right. what do you think?
1: I think that the narrator has goodwill towards him, but there's a little bit of dissonance in how he's treating Brother Francis, who we are sympathetic and want to protect. Um, right and i think that dissonance works for the story like very very well but the whole point i think is that the abbot never forgets that he his first responsibility is the monastery like yes. that is the that's the goal and and then he uh in order to accomplish what he needs to accomplish there uh he has to allow brother francis to to suffer through uh and um, yeah, he's harsh on him. He's very harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's going to serve the greater good, which ultimately it seems within the context of the story serves Brother Francis. And our narrator tells us, like puts Brother Francis through the ringer, uh, the story does. And then it's very quick to tell us that he is eventually, you know, after seven years, he gets to come <laughs> back into the fold. And I was like, hey, seven yeah. years, Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is one of those things that,
1: and assault is uh, attacked.
2: <laughs> in the moment, yeah. it's hard to interpret his actions, uh, and he seems like he could just be jaded and grumpy. Uh, but yeah, I think it is revealed by later events that the the weariness that he seems to express is in in understanding the need to put Brother Francis through these things for the good of the of the monastery.
1: Which is assumed will be ultimately good for Brother Francis, right? And so that's there right. is this understanding of of grace carrying you through trials, and um, and he's not spiritualizing anything. Like that's too yeah, right. Yeah, I don't I don't mean that to be like, and this let this be a moral lesson, readers. Like, <laughs> I, I don't mean that at all. But that that communal. That the communal life serves the individual monk is part of the premise and the the terms of the monastic life, yep. um, and so his strategic actions are not intended to throw Brother Francis under the bus, uh, but he's going to have to endure in poverty, chastity, and obedience in order to uh, for for the monastery to to receive the grace of this visitation. And and he seems to understand that. Yeah.
0: I kept thinking about the story of um, Jacob in the Bible. Hmm. I, it feels like he works for Laban for seven years to get Rachel <laughs> right. right. Um, and I couldn't tell if that was like, is that on purpose? Like, do you think that's... I, I mean, think we, so,
1: yeah. The seven seems super intentional to me.
0: Yeah. I wonder what the 11 means. But it's 11 years before the envoy comes from New Rome. Oh, interesting.
1: Well, in the 12th year, right? Another, yeah, that's another biblical. It would be, yeah, it's true. In the 12th year that would come to fruition, maybe. But it's such an earthy novel, too. Like, it's not, it doesn't feel like reading Loris. It's not like, (laughs) it's, it's not this, it doesn't have this, like, spirit this tone of spirituality and like lofty things like it's very earthy even to that's what i would yeah
2: well that's one of the things maybe i would say to uh your friend at the bookstore this is such a funny book uh it's so it's so funny you almost question
0: about this you,
2: you feel bad maybe or guilty sometimes finding it funny but it's it's intentionally so and it's so funny Okay, so there's a question that
0: we got uh, on the October-November update We that I posted with the schedule. I noted, I quoted a few reviewers uh, who said that, um, I, I said apparently this is a book that still smolders and is delightful to read. Still Smolders comes from a New Yorker article about it from a few years ago. And then Delightful to Read comes from an article at Tor.com, which is a science fiction publisher. And they had, they had an essay about it that said it was delightful to read. So then there's a comment and I don't mean to throw this person under the bus in any way. Um, <laughs> but this person says, um, I don't know how anyone can describe a Canticle for Libra with it, as delightful to read. Um She didn't get into, you know, why she felt that way. Like that it wasn't delightful to read. She didn't get it. She didn't say, well, you know, just was it too long? Was it a slog? Was the content? Was it too dark? The, the she,
2: bleak landscape? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So... I am. I think we should talk about this because that that comment that is delightful to read dovetails with what you're saying about it being funny. So yeah. for those who don't necessarily see it as funny, is that okay? I'll just ask it this way: Is that just like they're missing something, or is that you just take takes time to be <laughs> toned in, you know, tuned in to the tone? Yeah. Well, okay. Hold on. Before you talk about this, Heidi, do you find this book funny?
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay.
0: All right. So, Sean, you talk about why you find it funny, and then we'll let
2: and then Heidi, you can you can uh, respond to that. So I, I wonder if maybe it is a tonal a tonal issue. It could also be um, an issue of emphasis. If if you're uh, distracted by, or if your attention is drawn primarily to uh, the setting, or you know, as even Heidi pointed out the the sufferings of Brother Francis, uh, then I I get why you would not consider it a pleasure to read. Um, and I don't know that I would return to this book for the humor alone, but, but beauty of the humor is how woven into the, the bleak or even the, uh, the frightening or, or um, painful moments. Right. So it's the things like the wolf cl- jumping on top of the, the grass covering that he makes for his little, a uh, hole in the desert, or uh, even the beatings he receives uh, at the hand of Abbot Arcos, uh, the way that those moments are crafted and the uh, the unexpected nature of some of those events and the way they develop is very funny, uh, and I think it works well to lighten some of those moments in helpful ways. I'm a I'm a person who uh, is particularly prone to laughing in what some would consider the wrong moments. Uh, and that is why well, you love Coen is, brother movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, it is a way that I uh, engage with and uh, uh, I guess tolerate the world uh, that <laughs> I, I think I have some legitimate justification for, but it can get me into trouble sometimes. And so I could see how, uh, some might find the humor ill-timed but maybe it's one of those things where you have to laugh to keep from crying all right what do you find funny about it
1: um i think that he's pokes fun at brother francis's like earnestness in some really great like hilarious ways without like being flippant or m- Mocking him in a cruel way, but the right. part when he faints after telling the <laughs> abbot that he's making an illuminated copy of the Lebowitz blueprint <laughs> it was so funny.
0: He, and then, and then the abbot just like walks away.
1: <laughs> the way he yells yeah. it, he's like confessing that he's doing something lovely, right? The Liebowitz <laughs> blueprint, the one you found, what doesn't look much like it. Why the changes? It's going to be. <laughs> Speak louder. An illuminated <laughs> copy. Brother Lawrence involuntarily <laughs> shrieked. Oh, Abbott Arco shrugged and wandered away. <laughs> so funny. Cause it just like it it shows that the author, the narrator, he knows his characters and is like gently kind of mocking them without it being cruel. I loved that. And I loved the um the Uh, just the dissonance between kind of the swinging, like the violent swings between these like lofty monastic ideas Mm -hmm. and the, and Latin and, uh, and then the strange distorted dystopian landscape, like that, is funny, but also I can understand for some readers, it might be off-putting and that might be, it might be less the dark humor or the sardonic humor and more that just that dissonance between those two things that creates kind of a disharmony as you're reading it. And you're constantly trying to reconcile those things. And I think that might be kind of just tiring for some readers. They might just not like that part of it. It
0: It occurs to me that almost every interaction he has with one of the monks is funny. Yes. Because it's, you know, it's or in some ways presented as funny, even when it's kind of like a serious thing. He's taking it, his earnestness is making it funny on the one hand, but then also the narrator kind of interpreting. Like we have the conversations with uh, who is the guy who he's constantly calling sarcastic and for years he's just like super sarcastic Jaris? with him. Is that brother Jaris, is that brother yeah, yeah. yeah, and then there's the other guy, the old man who is working away at his thing and every now and then he'll just look up and say something and so so he all these very like earnest interactions are presented in a, in a way with a great that's that's very humorous. So then my question is, what is the reason for making it funny? Like what is the benefit of that to the story? Is it is it just to help the reader disassociate from the bleakness? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good question.
0: Like, you know, he, he does this on purpose. He's probably a very funny man in his own right. Maybe he sees the world through a sort of uh, darkly comic
2: lens, You know, like a Coen yeah. Brothers type of storytelling. But I'm curious. Uh, I to- think – so I, I always think of – when I think of authors that are like Miller, uh, I always think of him in association with Joseph Heller, who yeah. wrote Catch-22. Who uh, also the the plot of Catch Twenty Two is these guys are allied bomber pilots uh, who uh, expect to be killed, and when they survive, they it's because they have done a really good job of blowing up things and people. And uh, uh, but Catch Twenty Two is also in the midst of that bleakness a very funny novel, and it does strike you as humor that's there to make the rest of it uh palatable tolerable yeah Yeah. uh and and i think maybe even that's partly for the benefit of the author uh, as well as the reader i was thinking a lot about vonnegut while reading this oh yeah waterhouse five yep
1: i think it's just a lot of that like mid-century mid-20th century authors did a lot of this like yeah to, uh because they're grappling with the i the mid 20th century was so afraid that the world was going to end like and and so the only way i think there's this cycle in order to create a psychologically realistic novel that's not unbearable um you have to put some kind of flippancy or dark humor sarcasm or something in there and there I, has to I, be a
2: veil just, between you and the abyss
1: yeah i think yeah. that's right like there's only you can only there are only a, there's only one dostoevsky right <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and so i i think that it that's part of it i think that there's a whole school of authors who are dealing with this kind of thing and that that's part of the deal right mm. um and there's some of the humor that reminded me a little bit of the Netanyahu's. Um mm. in
0: Oh, that might trigger some people.
1: <laughs> I, that's okay, right? This is that's okay. Um and in that whole idea, and it's that same thing. Like if you're looking at the end, what 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 will maintain your humanity? Right. And so then you have um the church, right? Which Walter Miller takes that very seriously and that's a very big difference from the Netanyahu's. Like this is uh there is the the reality of the church which he takes that very seriously in this novel. Like that's mm-hmm. never laughed at. Um sometimes the people are whatever, but not the church itself. At least so far. And I've only ever read I've only read the eight chapters. Um but everybody else has everything else and everybody else has this like kind of comicness to their humanity um that that reminds us that we're still in a place worth living in and and I think that that's really important for in a literary sense like in a craft sense we have to know what makes this world worth living in after the apocalypse right and some of it is that you can still kind of like laugh at your fellow man and have some conflict <laughs> with them and notice what's ridiculous and um and attend to that and and that makes this world worth fighting for and worth living in in spite of all of the loss and the destruction and the fallout mm we have to care about it in some way. And you can't just care about like lofty things. You have to care about earthy things too. And humor is how you get to that. Common things. Yeah. Humor and food, I think like in, and there's not (laughs) a lot here. Like that's why Babette's feast works so beautifully, right? Like these stories that when you're trying to figure out how do I craft a world worth fighting for, you give descriptions of food and culture or humor,
0: Hmm. Maybe that takes us back to uh, The Gentleman in Moscow.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or a landscape too, I guess, place. Like that's Wendell yeah. Berry's big thing. But that it matters a lot that you do that in a story that's about the preservation um, of something worthwhile. You have to give some anchoring into why it's worthwhile. And they live in the desert and they're monks. And so you have to make the people... You know, funny or cool or whatever.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Did, did, did he pull off cool? Abbott Argos is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. He's smart, strategic, <laughs> interesting. He's got, his,
2: he's got his coyote robe. <laughs> yeah. Looks like a wolf.
1: And I'm gonna take a shot at one of your great book. Your your books you love Sean and is in the name of the rose I feel like as when I'm reading the name of the which I was thinking about right because it has the same kind of like um uh same kind of descriptions and immersion in the monastic culture um Mm -hmm. and in a time when they're islands exactly the conflicts between there's the uh in order to orient us to the world that's probably foreign for a lot of us you have to give yeah. a lot of descriptions and make it very concrete and give a lot of people that you're you're supposed to care about um and one thing i think that i really like the name and i really like that book but there's so little humor in it that sometimes yeah. i am a little bit like <laughs> yeah. what what is worth What is worth preserving other than than the monastic ideal? Like what's in the middle between this like depravity that's taking over with all the murders and this ideal? Like what's the middle ground?
2: Yeah, I don't – and for for all the love I have for that book, I don't know that it presents – a compelling reason to preserve the monastic ideal.
1: Right. I agree. Yeah. And the reason is not because the ideal isn't cast. It is. It's because it's right. not human enough. It's too ideal. Yeah. And so, and here we have like so many humanizing elements um, and the humor is one, one of those things.
0: Okay. Let's. I'm probably start thinking about how we're going to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be talking about all the parts of this book, all of them over the next few weeks. This is a book that's all, you know, concerned with things being cyclical. And I think we'll probably have to talk about that a lot. Is there anything yeah. that you would, you would, we'll ask you this first, Sean, that you would say people should look out for as they're reading it? And then, Heidi, I'll ask you it in terms of what are you excited to encounter or what are you looking
2: for since you haven't read it? Uh, I think that something that's present on most of the pages but also can get obscured with what's happening Immediately is the the project of the monastics, uh, the the order of Leibowitz in particular, just what they're what they're doing, and the open question of how valuable it is. Uh, so I mean, we're I I'm a classical teacher, and uh, we're sort of living in this age where. There has been a kind of simplification, <laughs> a century of simplification. Uh, and, you know, we're we're faced with the the question all the time to make, uh, you know, value judgments. Uh, are these old things worth preserving or teaching uh, or, uh, you know, is there. Uh, I, I'm working now so that 20 years from now, uh, people will be able to understand uh uh, this work by Aristotle that no one understands right now or whatever it might be. Uh, so there's there's something uh, relevant there to uh, maybe many of our listeners, people with locations like ours. But uh, I think at this point in the novel, it's still kind of an open question because it's not just – it's the case that they don't know what the value – they don't know – they don't have any sort of demonstrable reason to insist upon the value of what they're preserving. So the Lebowitz blueprint is a great example. Uh they can have they can have this sincere compelling hilarious debate about what is depicted in the diagram because nobody knows. But there's this undergirding assumption that it's worth preserving anyway. Talk about neutrons. Yeah, that's right. Electrons yeah. whatever it yeah. was. Yeah, the the uh, negative twist of nothing. Yeah. And and I don't know that the the novel has delivered a verdict on whether that is a valuable enterprise uh although it it treats fairly the assumption uh on the part of these characters that it is uh but later events will will maybe call that into question uh so it's worth keeping an eye on that and and then the the background to the events of the novel too right what what was it what was the impetus of mankind uh in destroying all of these things. And, uh, you know, is that an impetus that we ourselves have? Mm. Heidi, what are you, uh,
0: what are you looking for?
1: So I, um, as I was reading this, the first eight chapters, I'm really excited. I, lo- I really like books like this about um, monks in space. Um, really? So <laughs> I read them all the time. Um, about the preservation of culture and what is because I'm I'm just really fascinated by that because I don't know the answer to it not and and I am a very anybody who knows me I like I want to be a booklager or a memorizer or an illuminator like really believe in that um, and at just what you said Sean but I'm not sure if I'm right mm-hmm. and and that creates for me, a lot of questions about being a Christian in a fallen world. And is that thing in me submitted to Christ or is that just me, you know? And, and that is, um, I don't know if that's anything I'll ever solve, but I like to read books that ask quite the same question.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: and, uh, so I was thinking about, as I was reading it, I was thinking about a friend of mine named, John Stone Street wrote a book a few years ago called Restoring All Things, and it's about uh, four questions intended to connect, uh, into, intended to like frame this conversation. Um, and his four questions for Christians in culture are, number one, what is good in our culture that we can promote, protect, and celebrate? Number two, what is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute Number three, what is evil in our culture that we can stop or eradicate? And number four, what is broken in our culture that we can restore? And I tend to be um, that number one question, right? Mm-hmm. What is good at, that I can protect, that I can promote, that I can show other people, that I can book leg, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, but this seems to be a book that's asking all four of those questions. And I, yeah. I'm interested in that. And so I'm excited about the story and the writing and all the things that we've been talking about. But I think for me, I'm just really eager to engage with the book um on, on its own terms of like sincerely seeming to ask these questions in our time.
0: Yeah. And it's pretty clear that we've only scratched the surface through this right. one point of view beginning. of what of what the story is going to be covering. I mean, even just, we know that it jumps ahead. If you've checked into it at all, it bounces around in, in time. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up. Um, I think we're going to have some plenty of great conversations. I believe we're in 9 through 14 next, something like that.
2: Um, uh, 9 through 15.
0: 9 through 15. Thanks, Sean.
2: Yeah. Oh, nine um, through 16.
0: I have 9 through 15 on the schedule,
2: so it's 9 through oh, 15. Do you? Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to read my own... Uh, messy writing in the back of my book <laughs> Uh-oh,
1: it's have not to go it's to it's confession a, it's, for judging it's, your handwriting
0: it's officially nine through 15 <laughs> on the publicly posted mm-hmm. schedule so that's what all it right is. so yeah it's we, like i said we barely scratched the surface of what we're reading and we barely scratched the surface of so, our wow. conversation so we'll go ahead and wrap it up but if you remember if you have any uh anything you want to add to the conversation hit us up on on the sub stack you can comment on the in the the comments under this episode. It's closereads.substack.com. There's also the chat there. You can post a chat thread. And of course, you, there is the Facebook group as well if you want to participate in the conversation there. So thanks to everyone who is a part of this community, everyone who engages in the conversations and sends us questions and comments and nice messages and reviews and supports the show with your with your money on Substack and all that. We're, we're so grateful for you and, and uh, honored to be a part of it as we start this new book. So
2: anything that either of you want to add? Nope. Any other final thoughts? All right. This is this is a great I, no promises actually, but this could be a great gateway couple of episodes uh, to some friend that you have that isn't <laughs> into all of the books that we might cover Not on the like, show, but Regency England. Yeah, Shame yeah on but them, but... all about monks in space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly.
1: It's Why's true. Isn't cool? Why wouldn't right, somebody want to read that book? No.
2: Like? Yeah, we want to read that. I think he's being know, earnest. Yeah. I want to talk to David people. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, with that for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading.